Hello and welcome to Zanazan Sounds, the Armenian Institute's podcast series. We have three strands in the series. Discover, which allows us to learn from people who are shaping our community in all fields. Uncover, that reflects on Armenian identities. And Treasures from the Library, which uncovers and discovers unique texts in our book and archive collection. My name is Gagik Stepan Sarkisian. I'm the librarian and research advisor at the Armenian Institute, and I also teach Eastern Armenian at, the, at AI. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Shushan Karapetyan, Deputy Director of Institute of Armenian Studies at University of Southern California in Los Angeles. Hello, Shushan, and thank you very much for agreeing to do this podcast for the Armenian Institute. Um, I must say at the beginning that podcasts are new to me and, and to the Institute. Um, for me in particular, it took me some time to understand what the term means. And after a while, I realized after listening to a few podcasts, I realized that it's, it's like a, a radio program uh, that, yes, <laughs> that anyone can do now, thanks to modern technology. Um, so um, to begin with, I and our listeners uh, would like to find out more about you. Who is Shushan Karapetyan? And in particular about the work you do in academia, but also in the community to which we will come uh, towards the end of our um, uh, talk. So who are you? Wow. And what That's you do and, and why you do it. <laughs> okay, well, first of all, hello, Gagik. It's my pleasure to be here. Okay, who is Shushan Garapetyan? Shushan Garapetyan is a scholar, a researcher who works on Armenian language, identity in a transnational context. How did I get to this? Uh, I think life, coincidence, chance, yes. <laughs> happenstance. I was born in Armenia, moved to the US at age 10. Okay. Um, so I myself transitioned from native speaker to heritage speaker, and we can talk about that. Grew up in an Armenian speaking family, but very much was invested in picking up English because I understood that's the language of importance. And then got to university and started passionately taking Armenian studies courses and couldn't stop. <laughs> I was an anthropology major dreaming of becoming an anthropologist only to discover there was an Armenian studies program and I just physically could not stop taking Armenian studies courses. <laughs> um, so I ended up getting a you know master's and a PhD in Armenian studies and in the meantime by chance I had the opportunity to teach Armenian at a community college in Los Angeles at Glendale Community College. First class they offered me was Armenian for beginners conversational Eastern Armenian. Right. And I did not receive a curriculum. I did not receive a textbook. All I received was a sheet with a couple of thematic categories. And then I walked into the classroom and 95% of my students were already speakers of Armenian who were taking a conversational Armenian class. And I had maybe three or four true foreign students, I, students for whom Armenian was a foreign language. Right. And at the same time, I was also teaching a course called Armenian for Armenian Speakers, 
which had a class full, <laughs> full of Armenian speakers at every point on the spectrum, those who had basic conversational Armenian to those who had graduated university in Armenia. Um, and again, I had no curriculum, no guideline, no textbook, nothing. So this sparked the notion of the need, that there was this need to study, to investigate, what is the condition of Armenian in a diasporic context? How is it taught? Do we have materials? Do we have an understanding of who our students are? Because they are not native speakers and they are not foreign language speakers. Mm. They're somewhere in the middle. Yes. So I was initially going to do a PhD on 17th century Armenian drama, <laughs> which then quickly changed to <laughs> Armenian as a diasporic language. Um, in and a that way, that. yeah. I think the, uh, the, the seeds of your future research were sown when you were a child. Absolutely. Uh, the uh, sort of dislocation from, from Armenia to Los Angeles, but also you majored in anthropology as an undergraduate. But I think you ended up doing the anthropology of Armenian language in the diaspora. It was a very wise choice. So how did uh, this bilingualism come about? when you arrived in, in Los Angeles and went to school? You, I assume you went to an American school. So first of all, I was already an Armenian-Russian bilingual when we arrived to right, some yes. degree, because here I was a child of the Soviet Union. Of course. Um, we had started formally studying Russian in the second grade. Television was in Russian. Um, the linguistic landscape in Yerevan was full of Russian. So, but my family was Armenian speaking. And when we came here, Russian kind of became dormant for me. I then started learning it again, relearning it in college. Um, the interesting thing was here I was in the city of Los Angeles in Glendale. We spoke entirely Armenian at home because my parents were not proficient in English. But, and I walked into my fifth grade class. I kept practicing this sentence in English. Hello, my name is Shushan. Hello, my name is Shushan. Because I was so nervous about introducing myself to my new English speaking teacher and my English speaking classmates. Yes. And I walked in repeating, repeating. And my very American looking teacher said, Varev Shushan. And here the, the very little English I knew just went to pieces. Of course. And then she said, will everyone who speaks Armenian raise their hand? And the entire class raised their hand. There had been so many new immigrants from Armenia to this part of LA that they had created a special class for these kids where we had an English speaking American teacher, but an Armenian assistant who translated everything for us, one, and two, gave us Armenian lessons to continue our Armenian literacy. This was before bilingualism was a bad thing in California. Um, and that was very, very important because one, it sustained my identity as a literate Armenian speaking child. I was a voracious reader. I remember the last book I had read was Jane Eyre in Armenian translation. <laughs> and when they handed me, you know, this pictorial children's book, they handed me like Amelia Bedelia. I was so insulted because I was reading novels. Yes. Um, so having that Armenian teaching assistant for whom I was writing essays, for whom I was writing poems really was very important for my identity as a literate child. Mm. And then at the same time, I picked up English very, very quickly. I remember by the end of sixth grade, I was 
taken out of ESL, which was English as a second language, yeah. put it regular English. And by seventh grade, I was in advanced English. You know, and, and yeah. as research shows, when children have a need, they will rise to meet that need linguistically. Yes. Um, you know, the, the, the language of my new peers, of the new institutions that meant so much was English. So I knew that yeah. I had to pick it up. But it was interesting because I continued reading in Armenian. My, my mother was a big reader. We had brought, of course, our library from Armenia. Nothing else. Yes. <laughs> Clothes, furniture, none of that was important. But yes. we brought all our books. <laughs> yes. So I continued reading in Armenian until I remember, this was like maybe eighth or ninth grade, I read Jane Eyre in English. Quite. And I thought, wow. <laughs> I have arrived. <laughs> I have arrived. Exactly. The moment has come. <laughs> Even though to this day I prefer the Armenian because it was my first encounter with the novel. Yes, yes. Um, but yeah, and, and, and so that was interesting too. So my Armenian remained constant while my English took off. And then at, in, in, in junior high and high school, I didn't have any Armenian instruction. My parents actually tried to take me to an Armenian Saturday school and the principal said, we don't have anything to teach her here. So you, should, you shouldn't waste your time. Um, but then in college, I started taking, you know, I took an advanced Eastern Armenian course and, and that was it. Yeah. And uh, what made you go into academia and in particular language studies? Well, uh, anthropology, of course, you, you did, but you eventually ended up studying, focusing on languages. Uh, what made you do that? I can give you the kind of proper professional answer or the, <laughs> the more personal answer. I can well, both, I think. <laughs> okay. The personal answer is this was an act of rebellion in terms of, you know, my parents' dream was that I would become a doctor, right? A medical doctor, not an academic doctor. And my one act of rebellion was to not do what they wanted me to do. <laughs> I can imagine the situations. I promised them I would have the doctor title. It just might not be in medicine. Yes. Honestly, I think I just loved learning. Uh, when I started university, bachelor's, my bachelor's degree, I was undecided. In the US, you have this chance to actually enter uh, your bachelor's uh, education with an undecided major, because nice. the first two years you're doing your general education courses. So I started taking all kinds of courses. I remember at that point, it was still a printed catalog, just scrolling through and going through, oh, anthropology, that looks interesting. Yes. I'm take anthropology. And I remember it was a cultural anthropology class. And because of my bilingual and bicultural background, it all made sense to me that every culture has a different perspective on the world, right? Every language, the new window into the world. So it just, there were light bulbs going off all the time. So anthropology made a lot of sense to me. And I think had I not had UCLA not had such a wonderful Armenian studies program, I would have probably continued with anthropology. Yeah. but ended up doing something in some village in Armenia, <laughs> just through the discipline of anthropology. And I, uh, my experience kind of teaching, so when I started teaching Armenian, I was 23. I had just started graduate school. Mm -hmm. I think had it not been for that particular experience, that's why I say it was a bit chance, a, a bit yes. coincidence, had I not started teaching and recognized the need for 
research, for investigation, for material development, pedagogical development, I might have continued in Armenian studies, but in a different direction. And the, the final thing I'll say is that what I realized about my area of research, which was language studies, applied linguistics, heritage language studies, was that this is research with consequence, that mm -hmm. my findings will actually shape my children's experience in a diaspora, oh, yes. in my community's experience. That aspect of it, that this was something very tangible, was very, very important for me, that I wasn't doing you know, it's theoretical, of course, but it doesn't live in the ivory tower, that what I'm doing in the ivory tower will actually have impact on the ground. That part of it was very appealing for me. Yeah, you had your, your children as um, experimental tools. Oh, we have a lot of family jokes about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, when you asked who is Shushan, I also forgot to say, Shushan is a mother of two daughters, uh, so, and, and that really also has uh, shaped my academic life because I remember when, uh, when I was doing my research, I already had my first daughter. So a lot of the things I was writing about, I remember holding my breath and saying, okay, yeah, this is pretty much right. <laughs> Cause I would see my child's language development. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah. did you include her in your materials and methods or methodology chapter? I did not because I was working with college-age students, but my um, co-chair of my dissertation committee did recommend hanging a recorder around my kid's neck 24-7 and perhaps pursuing a second project. Uh, yeah, no, it, it, was, it was very, very eye-opening to go through language studies, language acquisition, bilingualism, while also raising two bilingual children. Yes. Yes, interesting, interesting. Uh, your research uh, focuses on the role of Armenian as a pluricentric heritage language, and in particular on language and identity in, in a sort of transnational context. I'd like you to tell us more about that, but to begin with, uh, could you please define what a, a heritage language is and also the term pluricentric? A heritage language in the simplest terms is a non-dominant minority language. Okay. So we can take the United States, for example, the dominant language here is English, but there are a lot of communities and families for whom their home language is a non-English language. Mm. So that would be the simplest uh, term. And, and you know, if we go deeper, there are three categories of heritage languages. It can be an indigenous language. So again, in the US context, this would be Native American languages. It can be a colonial language. It, uh, and in many cases, especially now, it's an immigrant language. Mm. So there are a lot of Armenian immigrants all over the world, but here, for example, in the US and Los Angeles. So there are many families here in the United States where children are born and raised in Armenian speaking homes, although the dominant language is English outside. Yes. So for them, Armenian is a heritage language. And what makes a heritage language so unique is that like a native language, it's learned in a very natural, authentic context. So it's not learned formally, it's kind of picked up by ear, yeah. just the way we pick up yeah. our native language. Uh, it's learned 
because children need to satisfy their very basic needs. Mm. But unlike a native language, it is not learned to full completion because of the interruption or because of the insertion of a dominant language. Mm. So if, for example, I continued to live in Armenia, the language I picked up at home would be supported by formal education at school, supported by formal outlets like television, like media, like the mm. linguistic landscape in the world. But in, a, in kind of a diasporic immigrant uh, context, the home language is different from the dominant language and the home language doesn't receive the support, the kind of the outside of the home support that the dominant yeah. language would typically yeah. provide. There are no structures for that exactly. Exactly. Uh, outside home. For example, for a lot of um, heritage speakers of Armenian, when they go to Armenia, they're shocked that like street signs are in Armenian, storefront signs are in Armenian, yes. that their friends are studying calculus in Armenian. This yes. is a shock for them, right? That Armenian exists outside of this home domain. Um, yes. And that's precisely the, the, the kind of the system that's missing for heritage mm. students to fully develop their language. And then to answer your second question, what is a pluricentric language? A pluricentric language like Armenian and like English actually is a language that has more than one standard form. Oh, right. And we have modern standard Eastern Armenian and modern standard Western Armenian. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of, I always tell my students, if you get nothing out of my class, I want you to walk out knowing we have two perfectly beautiful perfectly equal, perfectly literary, modern <laughs> languages. That one is not a, a kind of knockoff of the other, a shoot off of the other, oh. kind of weaker dialectal mm. version. Um, so that's that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very true. You mentioned that people going to Armenia come back surprised that everybody speaks Armenian. When I, in my teens, one of my, my friends did go to, uh, to Armenia and on his return, the first thing he told me was, this is what I remember, actually. He told me lots of things, but this is stuck in my mind. He said, even the policemen speak Armenian, which for a diasporan Armenian is it's a very strange thing because the policemen do not speak Armenian in France, in, in Lebanon, in Syria, um, anywhere we, we live. Um, the policemen do not speak Armenian. Uh, that's a great example. I will steal that example and use it in my classes. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. Yeah. Or that, that you can do, you do your taxes in Armenian. This is, this is another shock, right? That you yes. do your official paperwork in Armenian. <laughs> your state yeah. bureaucracy is in Armenian. That's right. That's right. I told you earlier, uh, before we started the, uh, this sort of formal, or I would say informal chat, um, uh, that I, I was going through your doctoral dissertation. I thought the, the title was very attractive. It's, how do I teach my kids my broken Armenian? So in itself, it's, uh, it attracts a reader, even a non-academic reader, I think, to, to find out how. Uh, you teach your kids your, <laughs> I don't think your Armenian is broken, but um, I, I see what you mean. I, I'm sure it was the first comprehensive examination of Armenian heritage language speakers. Could you tell us a bit more about your dissertation and, and in particular about the overall linguistic landscape of Armenians in Los Angeles? Because I think it's, it's an ideal place for linguistic research, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I call it the Mecca of Armenian 
uh, linguistic research, LA is so, so unique because it's, it's, I call it a microcosm of the Armenian diaspora experience. We have one, a large, large community just in numbers, right? So it's, it's a very large community too. It's a very heterogeneous community. We have Eastern Armenian speakers. We have Western Armenian speakers. We have dialect speakers of each. Mm. We have old diaspora. We have new diaspora and we have everything in between. Yes, the middle diaspora. <laughs> the middle diaspora. And they all coexist and interact with each other. So all of these linguistic variants, all of this sociolinguistic dynamics, socioeconomic dynamics, all under the pressure of English. Oh, yes. So in that sense, Los Angeles is very, very unique and very rich. And we still have the constant inflow of new Armenians coming, both from mm -hmm. Armenia and from other diasporic communities. So it's constantly replenished with a new wave of Armenian mm -hmm. speakers, mm -hmm. hence the kind of vibrancy of the community. So in that sense, I, I, I couldn't be in a better place for research of this kind. And the dissertation project, uh, th that quote, that title is a quote from one of my participants. How do I teach my broken Armenian to my kids? And it's interesting because my dissertation doesn't answer that question. My dissertation examines the angst under that question. And we can even break up the title into components and it'll kind of be a good overview of my dissertation. One, that they self-identify their Armenian as broken. Yes, yes. So this, uh, I can't tell you how, I don't know what word to use, heart-wrenching with the types of terms my participants used to describe their Armenian, broken, dirty, impure, childish, mm. improper, unacceptable, defective. Mm. So this idea that, and, and my participants had a range of proficiencies, anything from very low proficiency, very conversational to quite high proficient speakers. But regardless of their proficiency, they self-identified as low proficient. Is that Different right? Thing. There was a psychological element yeah. to it. A block. Um, yeah, absolutely. Mm. So this was kind of one element for me was to understand what their actual linguistic matrix looks like. So a lot of my applied linguistics professors would say, we know heritage speakers know the language. Mm. We also know they don't know it well. <laughs> Yes. So, but what we don't know is what they actually know and what they actually don't know. All right. So, and one metaphor they would use is a piece of Swiss cheese. So they have the piece, they have the cheese, <laughs> but there are holes, big in, holes in them, right? <laughs> so one question for me was, what are the holes among young college age Eastern Armenian heritage speakers? Mm -hmm. So. So one aspect of the dissertation project was to do a linguistic analysis of their actual proficiency. And that's why when I interviewed them, I interviewed them in Armenian. Right. And then I transcribed the interviews and then I, I did a linguistic analysis. But the other aspect was a more ideological psychological study of what does Armenian mean for them in terms of their identity, in terms of performing their identity, in terms of defining their identity. So there was that kind of ideological element to it where I tried to understand how our language is perceived in identity formation. Interesting. That was very, very interesting. 
Another element which I found fascinating was language use patterns. So all bilinguals or most bilinguals use both of their languages. And a question for me was what triggers which language? So here we are, for example, the two of us, right? Armenian English bilinguals. At what, how do we choose at what point to use Armenian mm. or to use English? Yes. Yeah, that was very, very interesting, very fascinating. Um, so I found, for example, that age is a huge trigger, that if you're speaking to someone older, Armenian is the language of choice. Yes. Gender played an important role. Space, both kind of literal space and metaphorical space played a role. So that, that was a, a, another component of, of the project. And probably my most unexpected and interesting finding had to do with language anxiety. Mm. You know, usually when you start a research project, you know what direction you're going to go in. That one took me off guard. Um, I didn't expect that my participants would express such intense anxiety when it came to speaking or using Armenian. And basically what I did was highlight that there's a psychological process going on that's pretty much debilitating, that because young Armenians are so stressed and in such duress mm. when they're using Armenian, it actually debilitates their potential to improve and to speak well speak because like when you're in fear of being caught out yeah. or judged or being criticized that fear doesn't allow you to actually process the input and and provide the best possible output even within the context of of, of an armenian um, society or community absolutely uh, I think you, uh, it's interesting that you, um, uh, you brought up this um, aspect of anxiety. And I think you, you have devoted a whole chapter in your dissertation to what you call the destructive cycle. Can you please elaborate on this? Because I, I found, found that very interesting, but also very real. Because I think all of us uh, Armenians in the diaspora have observed this phenomenon but perhaps haven't thought about it. But uh, so it was, it was a revelation to me to, to see uh, um, it qualified or, or described as a destructive mm -hmm. cycle. Many Armenian youth, and this starts very early on in their life, are teased or ridiculed for their Armenian. Mm. And often this is done by family, family friends, teachers, members of their own community. So it's not non-Armenians yes. teasing them. It's Armenians teasing them for their lacking or funny or non-standard Armenian. Mm. And so I'll give you an example with my own daughter, which didn't make it into the dissertation, but <laughs> makes it into coffee table conversation. So my daughter was three and a half. I took her to get a haircut. And of course the hairdresser was Armenian. The beauty of living in LA is you can get most of your social needs met in Armenian. So, and the, the hairdresser in Armenian asked, how old are you? And she wanted to be very precise. She's not three, she's not four, she's three and a half. So she thought about it and she said, <laughs> at half past three instead of three and a half. Yes. And the hairdresser started laughing. Because it was a cute mistake, right? It was a cute linguistic oh, mistake. And yeah. of course, my daughter broke down in tears, right? Because she yeah. felt ridiculed. Now, 
Had we been in Armenia and had this been in a native speaking context, this would have been a cute joke that would have passed. Yes, that's right. She would have learned that Yerekhan's guess is half past three and, and so on. A lot of native speaking parents get very offended when I bring up these examples because they say, you, are you saying we can't have fun? That's very natural. You know, a lot of kids, all kids say funny things when they're learning a language, all kids. But my point is, the difference is that native speaking kids eventually realize what's non-standard and what's, mm. what doesn't make sense, yes. whereas heritage kids don't because they don't have all that extra support that we talked about. That's right. So the cycle starts here. These heritage speakers are teased, ridiculed, criticized, corrected, and so on, which creates a, a, a sense of fear or a sense of anxiety, anxiety. that when they start yeah. speaking, they're going to be judged. As any language teacher and linguist knows, the best way to develop your language proficiency is by being exposed to language. And typically, language that is at a slightly higher level than where you are now. So if you speak to someone more proficient than you, that'll help you improve. Of course. Okay. Who is doing all this criticizing? Those who are more proficient. Yes. So... The, the kind of unfortunate element of this is that precisely the people to whom you need to speak to help you improve your language are the ones who are criticizing exactly. you. Yes, yes. And, and, and impede the development of the language. Yeah. Yes. So what that causes is for these young people to avoid speaking and interacting with those who have more proficiency than them. <laughs> which impedes and prohibits the development of their language, mm -hmm. which causes those very same people to criticize and ridicule and comment even more. So, and the, the cycle just feeds itself over and over again. And it's funny because my participants would say, I only feel comfortable with my friends who speak just as broken as I do, or those who speak worse than I worse do. Worse than I do, right. Because then I'm not embarrassed, then I'm not ashamed, then I'm not called out. And they have no room for improvement. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. This is this is kind of the tragedy of it all. Yes. Yes. Is that, and so I've done so many kind of community outreach talks about please, folks, just let these kids speak. Fine. You know, well-intentioned humor, well-intentioned teasing in the home context is fine. We all get it. But be a little sensitive to what's happening with these yeah. youth because. Here they are, 18, 20-year-olds, who tell me things like, I think like a 20-year-old, but I speak like a five-year-old. Mm. So I'm already self-conscious that they're going to judge my intellect based on my yes. Armenian production. Yes. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Zamizam Sounds, and make sure that you stay tuned for part two, coming soon part that's so sad and I tell my students Armenian is supposed to be a source of joy for you Armenian is supposed to be an avenue of discovery but for them it's burden guilt inadequacy failure and you know their parents will say things like we saved and preserved Armenian for generations at the cost of our lives and our livelihoods and all you had to do is learn the alphabet and you couldn't even do that, right? So yeah. the fate of the nation is on every child. Yeah. What a, a burden. Much, a little too much, I think, yeah. <laughs>